Welcome to Thoroughbred Network, and I'm your host, Hailey. In this episode, we travel to the Valley of the Racehorse, otherwise known as Lambourne. Lambourne is situated in southern England and is home to over 1,500 racehorses, as well as our podcast guest, Josh Afiafi. Josh has over 30 extensive years' experience within horse racing. He started as a stable lad with Martin Pipe before becoming an amateur jump jockey. He's been head of marketing and director of racing at an internet startup now known as Betfair. He's been chief executive at the Professional Jockeys Association, as well as founding the award-winning rewards and loyalty program called Rewards for Racing. And he's currently a presenter at Sky Sports Racing. He has an abundance of entrepreneurial skills, as well as a passionate drive for equality, diversity and inclusion in racing. He launched a compelling documentary called The Uncomfortable Race, where he investigated what it's like being from an ethnic minority background working in racing. The Racing Pathway is his latest initiative. Supported by the Racing Foundation, it encompasses three collaborative pathways into our sport. Promoted across a more diverse audience, it will ensure that racing is attractive to a future fan base and a career path for Generation Z. Josh is so full of life and his passion for his sport is contagious. His drive for diversity and inclusion within the industry is fierce and his most recent campaigns are very compelling. I love discussing a variety of topics with Josh and we hope you enjoy listening to one of our industry's great minds. Josh, welcome to Thoroughbred Network. Welcome to Lambourne. <laughs> it's so exciting. This is my first podcast, not in Australia, um, obviously. So this is a big thing for us, but it's great. So I really appreciate your time today. No problem at all. Josh, most people would know you from broadcast. Um, and the word sort of entrepreneur um, surrounds you. And you've been very busy the last couple of years. But for our listeners to understand a bit about you and, and what you do, you didn't come from a racing background. No, um, I came. I rode since I was a kid, so I was I think I was five years old, and and I had no definitive love of horses back then, which which I do now because I understand it so much more. And it came from it was my my white knuckle. It was my adrenaline rush. It was. There were no bungee jumping and stuff like that in the day. But where did I get it? I got it from going as fast as possible over <laughs> as big offences as possible. And, and that's where it came. It was my extreme sport. And I sort of read somewhere that it wasn't until you met someone at school who was sort of into racing and that's how you started watching it. Is that right? Well, there were two, there's two ways. How I, how I got into horse racing to start off with was my dad was flying one day, and so I'm a son of a pilot and a son of a teacher. And, um, and dads are always career, career, career. My son rides horses. What's he going to do? And this guy, was, he was flying one day. Was, his co-pilot turned up, and his co-pilot had a black eye. And he was sort of like, right, get in the aeroplane. Don't worry about it. Don't see the passengers and we'll have a chat on the way down. Thinking this guy had been in the fight. And um, anyway, so they take off, fly down to Malaga or wherever they're going. And um, so get up to cruising altitude and they turn around and say, and he says, okay, right, talk me through the black eye. And his co-pilot turned around and said, um, well, you're probably not going to believe me, but I got the black eye from riding in the Grand National last week. 
so dad sort of a bit taken aback and he was like tell me more and this guy back then pilots earned a, a significant amount of cash compared to the average salary in britain and he had no kids uh, married to a lovely stewardess and they had enough money to have a few horses one of which was good and a permit and one of which was good enough to run the grand national buried him got a kick off they go so my dad turned around and goes will you take my son racing um he's into horses we don't know what we're going to do with him and he took me to Ludlow there about two weeks later and I walked in, never been racing, seen it or anything before in my life, walked in and just said, that's exactly what I want to do. What was that experience for you being on a race course for the first time? What do you, what do you think, what was the magic that got you really interested? It's what I do every single time I take someone racing for the first time is I take them down to the last fence and just sit them there and they just walk away and they, they're bought, they're done. The noise is unbelievable and people don't realise that jockeys talk in races or the speed that you go over those fences, people just get it. Well, you take them to the start in a flat race, you know, that's where the magic happens and it's tangible magic and you don't have to be educated in the sport to understand, wow, it's like sitting, I suppose, sitting on the bend of a Grand Prix or whatever it works out to be. It's going to be as we saw at the first bend at the previous Grand Prix, uh, the British Grand Prix, should I say. So that's what it's all about. It's understanding the action. So at 16, you decided to move out of home and head to Martin Pipes. What, what was the dream there? What, what, I mean, why did you choose Martin Pipe? Uh, my dad comes into it quite a lot, even though he knows absolutely nothing about horses. Um, he's been a great guidance and I was... I'd be, I came to Lambourne for the first time when I was 15 because he said, where, do you, where are you going to, if you're going to leave school at 16, where are you going to go? And I said, okay, I came down here for a couple of weeks for um, Kim Bailey. And then came back and he said, so where are you going to go? And I said, oh, I might, I'm going to go to Simon, I'm going to write to Simon Sherwood, which is hilarious. I didn't know Simon Sherwood. I obviously know him very well through Oliver <laughs> now. Um, and he said, why are you going to go there? I said, well, he's starting, I'm starting, and we'll build up there. He said, and Dad said, well, I see your logic, but who's the best? And, and, and I said, um, well, Martin Pipe is like, not just the best, he's like <laughs> leagues above everybody. And he said, well, write him a letter. And I said, I can't write Martin Pipe a letter. And he went, yeah, you can. And I'd, what I hadn't realised is that through meeting the pilot, at, I think I was nine when I first went racing, um, for the next seven years, I went and rode out at various different yards through this guy introducing me to. So from Alex Stewart to Richard Lee to Conrad Allen to um, Kim Bailey. And all of them had written me a reference. So when I did apply at 16 uh, to Martin and Carol, that they, there was a CV here that said, look, this kid works hard. He can ride. Um, blah, blah, blah. All of them thinking I was probably going to go and work for them. And then... Um, yeah, amazing. I got a phone call two days later from, um, well, we're a piss-taking family like we are in this house. <laughs> My parents were with me. And so I remember sitting on the couch like I am now and um, my mum coming in the living room and saying, uh, Mrs. Pipe's on the phone. This is two days after we'd sent the letter. And I'm thinking it's like Auntie Doris. So I go and pick the phone up and sort of go, hello, like this, taking the piss. And it was like, hello, George, it's Mrs. Pipe. And then I absolutely <laughs> pat myself. Uh, and then three days later, went down for an interview and um, my dad drove me all the way down, um, down to the West Coast, 250 miles from home. And um, yeah, we um, interview went well, got the job. 
And I remember coming out, it was a late interview because dad was flying out of Birmingham. And um, it must have been probably nine o'clock at night that we'd, we came out. And we drove up this long drive in this, it's a very sleepy village, Nickelshane, where Martin Pipe trains. And you've got two black guys getting out of the car, dancing around the car <laughs> like this, that basically I got a job and God only knows what, what, whether the police were called or not. And then we drove the 250 miles back home. But it was amazing. And then I left three weeks after uh, my last exam and uh, moved away never to come back. And so at that point, the dream was to be a jockey? No, I suppose my strap line is um, I was too too tall to be a jockey and too no too fat to be a jockey and too short to be a basketball player. But I did both and um, always knew I was going to be too eventually too heavy and too tall and too, not too tall too heavy. I suppose because there's plenty of jockeys that ride that are six foot plus nowadays. But um, I just followed my dream and it's one of the things I always believe: if you follow what makes you happy, and if you do things that make you happy cash will follow or a job will follow or you, you, you know wealth in life isn't just generally cash if you're happy you know you see happy bin men you see completely depressed stockbrokers and people that work in the city so you've just got to be happy and I was that was my happy place and Jesus weirdly as soon as my parents left who I loved to death drove up the drive I was even more happier because I now had independence I was 16 and I look at um my kids now, one of which is 17, and he'd burn past it. So, I mean, he wouldn't be able to leave school, <laughs> leave home at all now. So, God only knows. And so you did ride as an amateur. Yeah. What, what was that day like when you had your very first ride? Um, well, I'm a, I'm a first ride. Mum and Dad, had, um, the horse that I got when I was in Pony Club and all this kind of stuff, they bought me an ex-race horse that was an absolute lunatic. Um but I learned a hell of a lot on him, but, it, but at a very fast speed. Um, and I ma we managed to win a hunt race. We had one ride, I mean, the hunt race, and, it, and he won. Just basically bolted <laughs> off of me for three miles. Um, and then went to pipes. But the first, and that wasn't really on a race because it was a hunt ride. So, but that was the first sort of taste of racing. And I'm very jealous of what's around nowadays with um, the Pony okay. Racing Association. I think it's absolutely fantastic because... You know, when I was riding, we were, um, so this is like a very early 90s. The whole, except for Peter Schoonamore, pretty much everyone was Irish because they've been riding in pony racing for, you know, since they were eight years old <laughs> and having 300 pony rides. And then we have our first ride and they look like Steve Corfin and we've been sat in <laughs> pony club with heels down and thumbs on top. There's all we've been taught to ride. So I think now you're seeing the standard, the British standard of rider go exponentially up um and you've got you know harry skelton's and richard johnson i mean richard i rode in richard johnson's first race they i won richard johnson's first race i think uh at utoxeter yeah that's a pretty good claim to fame <laughs> yeah well, I, I, beat him. the only time i beat him yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> so what point did you call it quits and say look you know I'm, this isn't going to be my long-term career um, I spent a couple of years at Pipes. I went, um, but then I got to a stage. I've always felt if I don't feel like I'm progressing, I'm going to I'm going to do something about it. And I went to I went back to college and did a year at college while still riding, um, which was racehorse training and business management, which was a course they ran up in the Midlands. Um, sadly, didn't last for more than a couple of years, as in the course. I then went to America and rode in America for a year, um, and came back and was beginning to become disillusioned with it because. Um, 
if you continue to ride and ride and ride and you don't feel like you're getting anywhere or you know i'd be riding probably 10 or 15 horses a day in america both at the in the track in the morning and farm in the, in the afternoon and you come back and you sort of you start losing your love of it a little bit um and i didn't know what to do and i was a bit it was, I was sort of 20 and 21 i was a bit dis, well, 21 i suppose i was a bit disillusioned and didn't really know what what to make of it my parents had separated and I went and saw a career psychologist and did um, a lot of psychometric testing, various different ones, not just Myers-Briggs, but three or four different ones. And you, you combine them all together and it will then spit out various different things of what you've been interested in. Because I do a lot now through the mentoring that I do with uh, a lot of quite a few people in the sport and outside the sport. And you can turn around and go like the world your oyster is a big sweet shop and you don't really know which way to turn what psychometric testing does is it goes concentrate on that corner over there and it just narrows it down that you can start looking at it and i took the same psychometric tests 20 years later at 41 and i come out exactly the same it's quite interesting hmm. it's interesting psychology yeah um and so from here we went you, you did quite a few years at betfair so now I started my first business at 22, I was, after I realised, after being disillusioned and I couldn't get a job for life and the money on the what I called the sort of the other side of racing, the non-riding side of racing. And the day I got turned down, I didn't even get an interview for the clerical assistant at Market Raisin Racecourse. I decided I'm going to have to do, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to have to do it myself. And I started my first business, which was called Racing Link. Uh, and had a unit went around every single race course in the country promoting horses for sale, uh, free bets with various bookmakers, uh, trips to the Arc to Triumph, all the race courses, this is pre-internet of course, all the race, other race courses fixture lists, and it was all free for people to come and pick up and gain information on. Again, trying to, everything I've done is sort of tried to share the passion that I have by educating people about horse racing or making it far more accessible than perhaps it is. And we only have uh, the problem with our sport. If you went to a flat meeting, the first two races are sprints. There are two minutes of action in an hour. There's not a lot else going on. And having that there, it meant people would wander around, pick stuff up, and hopefully become far more engaged. And the last client I had through the door, I closed it down after four years, um, was a young internet startup. And uh, we did six months with them at, um, advertising their product. And uh, they said, can we pay you installments to help cash flow? And I said, yeah, of course you can. I think our deal was about three grand. So it was like five, 500 pound a month, off you go. And at the end of six months, uh, the first round of foot and mouth hit and I had to close, close the business down. Didn't go bankrupt, remortgaged my house, paid everyone off. And that company then rang me and said, look, why don't you, there's an advert in the Racing Post this weekend you should apply for it if, you, if you're keen to be our head of marketing. And that company was Betfair. And there were, so they started off, there was um, probably 20 of them when they rang me when we first did the deal in terms of me helping them 500 <laughs> quid dealt with cash flow. I mean, geez, it's mad, isn't it? Multi-billion pound business. And so I went there and there was, there was, I don't know, 40 or 50 people there. And then when I left, there was 1,500 seven years later. It was just, it was, uh, sorry, six years later. It was the most amazing period from sort of 01 to the uh, beginning of 07. What, what did that sort of teach you about growth in business and just general taking something from this and growing it into something better? 
Well, there's a mass, there's a massive question. Um, there's a lot of screw it, let's do it. Yeah. You know, far too many things. And racing is a, it's getting slightly better, but it's 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 got a long way to go. Killed by committee is basically what happens in horse racing. Yeah. And again, all the work that we've done um, in terms of where we are now, in terms of the new initiatives coming out, the reason why we've gone and done it ourselves is because if it went to a committee, it just it just never happens. It just gets killed by bureaucracy. So Betfair was one. Martin Pipe was one. Rewards for racing that we run. We, everything I've done has been, they've been challenger brands, companies and people where you go against the grain and you you go, well, why can't you do that? And um, and someone may well come back with a question why you shouldn't, but you still will go and do it. They're disruptive brands is probably the, uh, what I'm looking for. And um, and we've just, Martin Pipe disrupted the, the training in the training fraternity. Betfair disrupted the, um, the bookmaking industry like you wouldn't believe. And I have no problem uh, going and being the minority and going up against um, and changing things for the better. If it's good for the sport, then it's good for what I want to do, you know. So talk to me about rewards for racing. What was the big drive behind that? Um, I saw a statistic... Um, so from Betfair, I went and did the, the Jockers Association uh, role for a couple of years. And whilst there, or just as I went in there, actually, I was offered to a, a license of, of, a pro, of a loyalty rewards program for horse racing. And I, and I had some friends that were uh, launching it in golf and said, look, we could, you know, do you want to come in with us and, uh, and look at it for horse racing? And at the time, I looked at it and I went, this is a brilliant business model, but the sport isn't right. So here's a lesson for you. You've got to make sure that your market is ready. You might have the best product in the world, but your market's got to be ready. Can you imagine if you bought a smartphone out in 1940? They'd be like, you know, what is this? It's an alien thing. <laughs> you know, and to give you the idea behind that is in 2007, 70% of people that went racing either bought their ticket by phone or they walked up. And when we launched in 2011, it flipped. There were various reasons. In other words, there were 70% that bought them on the internet. Now, the reason why that had happened, there are various different reasons. One, it takes our customer base a little bit longer, and it is an older demographic in terms of racing's customer base to, to become trusted. It was only six or seven years ago that still 50% of um, Cheltenham's membership were paying by cheque. I mean, <laughs> like, it's... And you're telling me that they haven't got e you know, an email address. You know, of course they have, because they book flights on Ryanair and EasyJet. They don't there because this is naturally what they then go and do. The other thing that happened was back in sort of 07, music nights, there were these Friday nights at Newmarket, that was it. And then it's obviously grown exponentially, the amount of music nights. And you don't turn up to watch Tom Jones or UB40 without a ticket. So people are very much used to going tickets. So it flipped that way and society started to move forward in terms of trusting the internet um, and online purchases. So then when we did launch in 2011, the market was ready for something that we'd done. And the reason why we launched was it was the stat had come out that people go racing 1.2 times a year, which was a very rough grey stat that had come out from one of the um, race course groups. But it was very apparent that people, because it's actually not really 1.2 times a year, there's a core group that go regularly and there are other people that go probably once every three years. It doesn't mean they don't like horse racing, but it's a bit like I might take my kids to... Alton Towers, 
They might have a great day. Are we going to go to Orton Towers next Saturday? No. Are we going to go this year? No. Are we going to go next year? We might not. We might go the year after. It doesn't mean we had a shit day the first day we went. And there's a huge market, which is what racing's big market is, of people that are going to go. If you can get them going once a year, you're doing well if they go once a year, you know? Yeah. So I think my so what what attracted us to you is you, you've always had a very strong voice and <laughs> loud voice I'd say. <laughs> yeah, you you've all, you, you you know you've sort of pinpointed quite a few things in racing that you like to have discussion about that you like to bring to the forefront, and I think sort of one thing that we sort of the main thing that I'm getting when I'm coming back to the UK is there is quite the racing post sort of put out this year that there is quite a decline in race goers. Do you think, like, how friendly are we to someone that's coming to the racing for the first time or the younger generation? Another big question. Um, I think we, we are at a tipping point and people like myself and others have been vocal around it, but... It's a bit like when you tell a kid, don't go near the fire because you burn yourself. Until they burn themselves, then they'll still go near the fire. Or, uh, But you don't want them to burn themselves badly. <laughs> or, if, you know, if, if a kid trips over and grazes its knee, it realises that hurts. So don't go, you know, go and do, do that. So, and racing's the same. It's only, again, being, your market being ready. The problem that we've got in terms of people who are trying to who are advocates of modernization and change such as myself is that we have a sport that is before you even open your doors you're getting paid and that's the levy which is an amazing thing but you ask any shop owner or retailer that you could get basically your rent paid before you even open the door they'd be like oh my god this is just like i'm living in disney world <laughs> And that's what we've got as a sport. So they're in a very comfortable space and have been for a long while. So even if all your KPIs are showing downward spirals, they're all right because they're still getting some money that opens their doors. You know, so getting them to realise that they needed to change, that you're not reflective of society and you're not going to survive unless you are reflective of society and that you need to look at some of these trends takes a lot longer. Now, am I loud about it? I'm lucky that I have a platform through Sky um, that I can bring about debate. What I'm not is a journalist that will bring up something by writing about it to create debate and see what happens. Everything that I do, I have some form of solution or initiative that I'm I would be trying to bring about to create positive change. So I, there's no point starting an argument. <laughs> You've got to have some solutions out there to go and do it. And whether those solutions are right or not, that's what I want to have the debate about, you know, because I can't stand people that go, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Okay, so what, what's right? And they don't know. They're just there to criticise or knock people for trying. You've got to continue. We're never always going to get it right, of course. You've got to keep trying and you will eventually get it right. So we've got various initiatives that are going on at the moment. They won't look the same in five years' time because they'll, they'll, they'll mature and they'll go through. But don't kill it before it even gets to the start line. And racing is a classic at trying to kill stuff off because it fears change. And, peop and most people fear change. Yeah. 
a big part of your drive was, was the racing pathways, but there's several elements to the racing pathways. There are, and, and that was the problem, as I was seeing, <clears throat> it's been very difficult over the 30 years that I've worked in the sport full time, 31 to be precise, that when you walk into a room, if no one looks like you, it, you don't feel comfortable. And I've gradually become more and more uncomfortable in racing's room and also disappointed really because I want more and more people and it doesn't matter where you come from to share the passion that I have for horse racing and the great career that I've forged um, within the sport in various different roles and I think it's making it sure that it's an option for people now that's the problem if you asked a million teenagers now what they want to do when they grow up not one of them is going to say I want to run Ascot or I want to run Cheltenham I want to be in unless they're going to be a rider they don't talk about horse racing Whereas a good few of them will say, oh, I want to run Old Trafford or I want to run Goodison Park or whatever it is. And we need to become an option. And so the pathway was formed on the back of my frustration with the sport. Um, I was part of the diversity and racing steering group back in 2017. And after two years, again, completely frustrated because it was committee led. Now, the people on it are lovely, lovely people. And some of them are very, very good friends of mine. But it, it, the actions that had no power and the actions that needed to happen, I was like, screw it, let's do this. And it's like, oh, well, we need to do this. And we need to do that. No, no, let's just go and do it. And after two years, and to give you an idea, let me give you an example. On day one, I turned around and said, Laura, look, one of the great courses that are out there is the BHA uh, graduate course. I said, why do you have to be a graduate to go on that course? I could never have gone it. I left school at 16, so I could never have gone it. I'd have loved to have gone <laughs> on it. Because it's about opening, it's, a lot of it is about opening doors. And a lot of uh, good friends that have, have been on it throughout the years and, and the seniority, two of my great, great friends, Dick and White and Adam Waterworth, were on the first one 20, no, nearly 30 years ago now. And, you know, they run Goodwood and they run and they run Aintree. Um, anyway, they turned around at this meeting and they turned around and said, um, well, there's no reason. That would be a great quick win for us, Josh, wouldn't it? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Open it up. So it's just the BHA industry course or whatever you want to call it. And they went, brilliant. Two years later, it hadn't happened. I then, um, after leaving, it was obviously reported that I'd left. Uh, and I didn't want it to be a negative, but there were always, obviously people were going to see it as a negative uh, towards um, the group. I then had an interview on Sky and turned around and they said, OK, Josh, so you say you're going to go and do something yourself. You know, what would be a quick win for the sport? So I bring up this. The following week, I get a phone call from the BHA saying, will you come and present to our board about your idea of this changing? And I said, no problem at all. I'll write you a paper. They said, OK. They got the paper. Kidding not, within two months, it changed to the BHA development programme. In the 30 years prior to that, seven non-white people had been on that course. In the three years since I've changed it, over, well, I think there's 14 that have uh, been on it in the, in the three years out of 30. So... And that's because you're opening the door to more people. And it's been amazing some of the initiatives we've done through the Racing Pathway. When you get all sorts of diverse opinions and people that walk through the door, the most successful businesses in the world are the ones with the most diverse workforce. If you're all the same white male people in a, in a room, you're all going to pretty much think the same. But bring in women, bring in you know, youngsters, and the, the big problem I have, there's no voice of the young in racing. Everyone, how am I supposed to know what Gen Z and teenagers <laughs> think? The way you do, well, you ask them. And that's the whole idea, and that's how the pathway was formed. I did teenage focus groups, 
um, we sat down and said, look, how do I, I said, my problem is, how do we make the sport more diverse? And I nearly fell into the trap of what I hate, <laughs> what other people do is go, there's no sort of like, where are you going to be happy? In other words, what does win look like? So you can turn around to the sport, you get blue people go, the bookies need to pay more money to prize money. And I'll go, how much do they need to pay? Well, I don't know, but they need to pay more money for more prize money. So you don't actually know what that answer is. So when I'm going, the sport needs to be more diverse. And the first person says, Josh, how do, what does wind look like? What's how diverse? So I was like, very good question. So to become reflective of society is win for me. And we are obviously miles away from it, no matter whether we've done the racing pathway and other initiatives that are out there or not. And what does that look like in terms of being reflective of society? 14% of the UK population is from a diverse background. 37% inside the M25. So I'm not expecting Newton Abbott to be 14% when its catchment areas are predominantly white. I definitely am when it comes to, if you go to Sandown, that's it's still the same or Epsom and what have you, which is brilliant now. We've got a new uh, person of colour. The first ever chairman person of colour is at Epsom with Brian Finch. He's got some fantastic plans about how you can engage the local communities about coming racing and making it more open to people. And that's what we need because the more people we get in, when you turn up now, you're going to feel, if you can see people that look like you in the same room or the same place, you feel far more comfortable. Go, going through um, a, 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 another big drive of yours is how racing sometimes can be pigeonholed to people that directly work with the horses or with trainers or in the saddle. So you've created a couple of um, sort of pathways here that focus outside the, the, the main elements. So um, two, two of them being the Media Academy and the non-yard-based um, apprenticeships. Yeah, so they're not pathways. They're initiatives Initiative. within, within the pathway. So the three pathways, there's a riding pathway, which the sport has got completely covered. And it, but they are adding to it as well, which is brilliant in terms of making academy, inner city academies. And there needs to be far more of them. But the two other pathways that needed that had massive gaps in, and we identified those gaps. And what our plan is here is to launch initiatives to fill those gaps in the hope that the sport goes, oh yeah, and they take on those initiatives. So we're not here to, um, we're probably here to show the way and take the risk, uh, be it financial, be it through resource or whatever it is. And hopefully with the successes we've had so far with filling some of these gaps, that the sport then take it on and, and complete this pathway and build from it. It's, it's the most basic of pathways that we're trying to do. But if you haven't got the basic one, there's nowhere to start. Otherwise, there's lots of work. But no, if you're a 14-year-old, or my, my son was six foot one at 15. He lives in Lambourne. It's a racing village. Racing has never reached out to him as a career because he's not he's going to be too tall to ride, to, to ride uh, uh, in a yard. So, but there are 350 other jobs that you, there are amazing jobs that you can do in our sport, but we don't reach out to them. So it's making sure that there is an option there and how we can further engage people to say, okay, be it a future fan. So the other two pathways are the future fan pathway, which yep. means you can do any role, but you become a fan of it in some way, shape or form. And our future owners, sponsors, investors, the whole nine yards will be, I'm sure will be a future fan. Um, sorry, a fan in their teenage years and we can develop that coming through. And the third pathway is the non-rider 
uh, employment pathway. So these are all the jobs that my son could potentially have gone down. If he's not going to ride, that you can still get a job in this sport. So we're talking like transport, bedding. What what other sort of roles is there out there for people who wouldn't know? Well. In a race course, he's probably got 50 different roles in a race course, be it from ground staff, be it marketing, finance, legal, um, sponsorship, commercial, there's um, affiliates, there's all sorts. On a bookmaking front, again, you'd have lots more, all to do with the sport. And there are some, I've done plenty of these jobs throughout, <laughs> throughout and they're all great fun because you're dealing with sport every single day. All these amazing animals as well. That it doesn't matter if you can ride them or not. You can get anyone that spends any time, as you know, with a horse is the best time you can spend <laughs> ever. They're great for mental health. Not many people know that unless you work with them, you know. So um, it's getting them out there and making sure that when someone comes to their career advisor and types in, I'd quite like to work in sport and work outside and it's, that racing comes up as an option that they might not even have thought of. And if it does, where do they go to find out more? And that's it, making sure that that's there. So when you talk about some of the initiatives like the Racing Media Academy, that was born out of the fact that I needed to do a whole awareness campaign. And if the awareness campaign has generally white, upper class or privately educated males as the faces of our media in sport there's only rishi and i that are of non-white that are on the in terms of in the, in the media on a regular basis we need to get more diversity coming through because if the fact people need to see it if you can't see it you can't be it they say and i need people to see it so doing the racing media academy was something that i was a little thing in the back of my head and i went well, the lucky thing I've got is through all the work that I've done in the sport, um, I've got access to the chief executives of all the media companies who all personally know me. And it was, it was I say it's easy. It's not easy. <laughs> but it was easy for me to get the first meeting when I send a WhatsApp to them all and they go, yeah, yeah, Josh, we'll get in a room. And these people usually battle like Billio against each other and they're massive rivals. It's a bit like getting Formula One managers in a room together, you know. <laughs> and I thought, oh God, this is going to be a nightmare. And I remember the first Zoom call we did, and I said, the first thing I said is, leave your weapons at the door. And they did. And we got it. And it was amazing, to be honest with you, because one of them would say, oh, we've been doing this, but it didn't work. And we did a bit of this. And, and the other one, who's his mate, I'll go, I never realised you did that. We've been doing this in terms of bringing youngsters and we're struggling. And it was great. And I'm like, this is brilliant, just getting them all in one room. And that's where the magic happens. When you get people together and the creative juices start flowing, I said, look, this is the problem. I want to get more and more diverse, especially background diversity, coming into the sport through the media and being the faces of it. Um, how are we going to do this? And in my head was a week's course and then on placement with each of these mini ones. And I said, look, I'm willing to pay for it. I'll put my money where my mouth is and we'll go and, and, and let's go and do this. So they were like, brilliant, don't even have to apply for budget. <laughs> Off we go. And we had three or four meetings. We met every month and then we designed this week of some amazing speakers um, in Newmarket, uh, which was Guinea's week. Uh, we launched in the beginning of December last year for applications. We got 188 applications, various ones from around the world. And the only stipulation was a willingness to learn. That's all I wanted. I wanted 10 people in a room. And I then stepped away from, in fact, I think I helped get some of the, sift through some of the CVs and then left it to Abby and Lee um, 
to work with the media partners uh, and to do the interview. So I remained independent um, and we ended up with 10 of the most amazing individuals I've ever met. And um, I'm delighted to say as we sit here today, coming towards the end of July, um, that six of those have got jobs within the sport, in the media. Um, two are still doing placement. Um, one's just about to have a baby, so she, she's, <laughs> she's, she's decided she's going to put it back for a year, uh, and the other one's got into further education. So it does work, the, uh, and I couldn't believe everyone who came and spoke on that course, from Claire Balding to Rod Street to TikTok, um, they all turned around and went, oh, my God. And Nick Luck came up to me at Ascot, and he said, where did you find that rough diamond? I said, I didn't find one, I found ten. And they... And we've looked back at that process as, as to how you find it. And they're now all getting mentors to help them through this. Well, there's no point bringing them in unless you look after them. So they, now get, they, they get independent mentors. Um, and they'll be part of the, the uh, interview process for year two. So that means that they'll be there, again, helping more diverse people come into the sport. So, so what is the course? So they come, they, they've applied for it. Do they have like a week with you first before they go to a placement? So they have this whole week in Newmarket, based at the racing school in Newmarket. Um, and they have speakers each day uh, across the across the sport and across the media. So, like I say, TikTok came in, Sky were in, Racing TV came in, both on a social front. They did a day behind the scenes at Sky. Um, they um, Claire Claire was amazing. Balding was amazing. Came in, at, it's like, oh my goodness, maybe she, she was absolutely brilliant. Rod Street was brilliant in terms of great British racing. Um, we had the heads of social come in for Sky. We um, racing Lee Motter's head and, Lee, and Lydia Hislop hosted a whole day. Equan Productions did a whole day in terms of um, camera work and sound. And then at the end of the week, um, they had a mock race day. So we had apprentice jockeys where they had to do. Um, we had a race up the gallops in Newmarket. It was filmed um, with all the EP stuff, so out the side of a van. Someone was, one of them was producing it. One was doing social media. One was doing walk and talk. One of the hardest things, as we all know, and well, we all know as a broadcaster, doing walk and talk interviews is very, very difficult. But we had one of them doing that as they came back in with a horse. It was brilliant. So they put all they learnt, what they learned throughout the week. They then put into action on this mock race day, and the feedback we got from them was like amazing like we'd have been so out of place feeling so out of place at the beginning of the week and then boom they were there but what the big thing that got me is they bonded like within 20 minutes of being in the room on the saturday night they were just a team and the whatsapp group buzzes on a daily basis <laughs> with various things and they have become a team and that's just it people say how are you going to expand it and I think 10 to 12 is as much as we're ever going to do because they've remained a team. Yep. There's a huge support network there for them to go and do stuff. Um, so, yeah, I'd like to say I've, I've now... And I know I'd, I got funding for it after we launched it. And, I'm again, screw it, let's do it. I'll, I'm always... I'll find funding. And if <laughs> I have to pay for it, I have to pay for it. But because it's so good, funding came along. And I'm delighted to say we've secured funding again for, um, for next year. Because the partners that they're... So they, they get to go and do... It's almost like a, it's a paid uh, internship. Yeah, they do six to ten weeks at uh, one of the um, one of the media partners. So I've got a couple more next uh, next year that are coming in. So it's Sky Racing TV, uh, JSC Consulting, um, Racing Post, Race Tech. So it's not Mickey um, Mouse companies. Oh no, we're, and that's what you're going to get at the top of your CV because even if you don't go and work there, you're going to get a reference from Sky, from Racing TV, from from you know some big known companies in the media 
that are going to say, boom, and you're going to get to try all sorts of different things. Because you might come in wanting to be, a, most of them come in wanting to be a presenter and leave after, not leave, but when they do leave after their placement, they they know so much more about graphic sound and wherever it's going to, or being an assistant producer. And um, one of the, the best stories, well, not even a story, that happened this year was, so I turned up, they, they had to be there on a Saturday at six o'clock in the evening. And um, I turned up about half past five and there was a, there was a guy that was already there at five o'clock. And, um, and he, he came up to me, he said, Josh, 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 I'm Michael. I said, oh, hey, Mike. I said, yeah, well done, you, you, you know, you're early and all this kind of stuff. I said, oh, did you, you know, did you drive down and stuff? He said, no, 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 no. I said, oh, did you catch a train? He said, no, no. He caught four buses for 18 hours because he couldn't afford a train fare. He went from Newcastle to Milton Keynes, four hours in Milton Keynes, Milton Keynes to Stansted, four hours in Stansted, Stansted to Newmarket, and walked from Newmarket because he couldn't afford a kelp. He said, but I wasn't going to be late. Those are the kind of people that are out there. He's just got a job at Racing TV. You know? So it's just, and those sort of things, that's the one that Nick Luck, you know, and Lucky yeah. had him on Luck on Sunday as well, and was just like, this guy's unbelievable. He's broad Geordie, and he's as passionate as they come. And, um, <laughs> And roll on. There are lots more Michaels out there, and I look forward to bringing them into the sport. I was interested. You got just under two hundred um, applicants, and you got seventy percent male, thirty percent female. Do you think there's any particular reason for that, or that's just how the cards fell this time round? When that happened, I went out straight away with that stat because yep. if I was to get ten, and it ended up being seventy and thirty. Remember, I started all this to try and create a far more diverse sport yep i didn't want to get called out if there were seven males and three women as the end result which reflected the uh, the applicants so i went out early with that stat because it might well have been that we ended up with 64 with six and four um in terms of the, the of the final 10 and that wasn't anything to do with us but it's to do with the sport. So we've got out to the sport with people like Women in Racing and said, look, we need to make it an option for racing needs to become an option outside of riding for women as a, as a career path, especially the, the media side of things. So um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens on the applicants applications next year. I, I fear there's going to be hundreds after. <laughs> uh, and what we also, we then set up the social media accounts that week and it just, we couldn't believe the, the followings and the feedback. that It just went, not in terms of likes and all this kind of stuff, but it, how we explain what was going on. People came on the journey with us and um, they were just like, wow, wow, wow. And then, they, you know, the, 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 uh, the post and the media all followed up over the weekends before. And we had two or three got interviewed on, be it Nick Luck on Sunday, be it on the debate show. Um, and it just went from, the, from there. And on the, the last night we were there, we were very kindly uh, invited, they invited the students to Frankie de Torre's inauguration into the Hall of Fame. And we walked into a, a room of probably 100 people, which the students have since uh, come back and said, if you'd have done that on day one, we'd have felt so out of place. Mm. It was unbelievable. You know, we'd, it would just have been, even though it would be, we'd be sort of like starstruck. We walked in on the Thursday night and they walked in with their chests out, not like they owned the place, but with so much confidence that Frankie wanted a selfie with them. 
<laughs> not them asking Frankie for a selfie. And it was brilliant. And we've got this amazing picture of Frankie having a selfie with him. And people went like they swarmed round them because they just exuded what we wanted about in our sport. They loved our sport. People had started following the, the whole story of it all. And long may that continue that they see these people go off into life. And they 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 have their no, their WhatsApp group is the class of 22, you know, and they're going to help me get the class of 23. So just for um, listeners to get a grasp on that, it is worldwide. It is open to... Yeah, anyone can apply. Yeah. Do you think, um, I'm sort of just thinking out loud, like we, we're a young media company sort of striving on, on the same realms. Do you think that you would offer placements to people outside of the UK? Um, I know you won't be able to able to control them as much but do you think that you'd be able to look at Australia and say hey there's a couple of media companies there that that we could assign people to or America yeah I mean it's in year one so yeah. I'm also conscious that one you have to ride waves yeah. so if you've got momentum you should definitely ride it we learned a hell of a lot in and, and still are in year one uh, that I'm surprised that all 10 got through the week because you, you do <laughs> expect that people do fall out or fall something off. happens and stuff like this um i'm a lot of our placements were london based and the cost of living as we all know let alone london is is ridiculously expensive so working on a i'm working on a bursary fund at the moment to help with living in london for your six to ten week placement um for next year we got it sorted this year for woes and um be it through personal sponsors as in that we'd arranged or you know I, I did one and, and and some of the media companies came in for others um just to help out because we've got to make sure and they also know there's a pressure on their shoulders because they know i turned around to them on day one and said i need you guys to be a success because the racing media economy is down to the success of you not me um in terms of it going more global yes i can see us taking in one or two internationally coming into us next year and then i've got quite a few international bit um public speaking or down at the asian racing conferences in melbourne next uh february and talking to racing.com and we've you know we've looked i've looked at launching a few businesses i actually launched betfair down there way back in i think that was 2004 um various contexts down in oz and america and stuff so it is something that you could roll out. Um, it's not something I want to... I'm not looking to develop a brand. I'm just trying to... What, what my sole aim is to, to get more diversity into the media. So um, if the, if other jurisdictions want to follow suit, I've got the playbook and I'm very willing <laughs> to share the playbook. So you were really lucky. I know that we spoke earlier and you said that um, the majority of it was self-funded, but then you were um, assisted with the Racing Foundation? Yeah, that's it. So the Racing Foundation came in uh october i think that landed last year um and they assisted with they paid for the students to go to because uh, there's obviously a cost involved with the racing school and stuff like that um and they assisted i had someone working that i took on full time um to work on these the racing pathway for me they've assisted in a certain amount of days for for him lee molson who i've got to give a massive shout out to he's <laughs> uh he is definitely basically I provide the ingredients and he bakes the cake and boy does he make an amazing cake and, and that's what uh, the racing, uh, all of our, all the initiatives that we've done, um, he's been the, the, the grafter, the arse kicker, the, the herding sheep, whatever it is, 
he comes into it. Josh can have a bright idea, but it, you need as many leads around you as possible to to make it a success. And I think he's now the sort of the the nanny of the uh, of the ten as well. <laughs> if they've got a problem, they go and see Lee. So um, no, and that, and that's what you need. You need you need people like me that can probably assist in opening the doors and getting those chief executives all in a room to start off with. And then you need Lee and Abby and people like that to. Um, really develop them and are very much caring. The social responsibility side of it all um, really comes from them whilst I'm off trying to go and get us funding to go and do it again. Do you think with the success of this first 10 that racing's going to come to the party and start realising we need to have more of these, more diverse ways of getting into racing and, and coming on board? Um, in terms of the media, yes. Now, the big problem we've got in the media is there's a very, very low turnover of staff because I walk around Sky and there are people there that won't leave because they've found, no matter what age they are, they're just, this is, they've reached the pinnacle of what they want to do. The pinnacle of the what they want to do, that's probably the wrong way of saying it. They love their job. So why, do, <laughs> why are they going to leave? So, um, and that's the problem. If you don't get turnover, how are you going to create new positions? Now, the advent of social media actually opened up new positions because you need gen z coming through that understands social media far more and you kind of learned it in, in in a university even though there are now courses i'm sure that have come about but equally you needed people that had probably media experience but then added the social media experience which was going to come from gen z that was one problem that we had and the, but it is starting to change and that's why i don't want to take it why have i got 50 because i can't guarantee 50 i'm pretty sure i can get 10 of them roles and jobs within this sport each year as they come through and then it's gaining the confidence with the media partners which we have now and they're singing it from the rooftops there and so they should be uber proud of the support they initially gave me but then boy they needed to take it on and you know but they are equally have then turned around and said look you started this don't be just turning around and going there you go and disappearing <laughs> so uh, we will be here for the for the next few years to assist in making sure it's a success a huge thing that we've seen lots of other industries just just thrive on we've seen it with micro influencers you know we're watching people getting paid on instagram to tell people about their favorite product is content creation and i know it's something you were quite vocal about um not so long ago when you were talking about the the content that we put out isn't always that positive like you know isn't always that um, engaging because we, we sort of talk about the sport and then the next sentence, you know, oh, this happened and there's bullying in the workplace and there's a drug issue. Or whatever. And we see a lot of sort of media outlets honing in on that because they think it's going to get it's going to get traction. Do you think as we start bringing sort of Gen uh, Z in that we're going to start seeing a difference in content creation, have a bit more of a creativity about it? Great question. Um, I hope so. Um, I don't know. My, my prediction is that social media has a lifespan um, that you only have to look at Facebook. You know, that's what you ask Gen Z, that's what your mum and dad are, are on. You know, it's not what they're on. So, and I think Twitter has become a really toxic place. It's not a positive it started positive. It was great. So I think there will be, even though there's billions, you know, billions of users, TikTok 
and the algorithms that the that, that they use. I'm a bit, I'm a big supporter of uh, of TikTok, but I'm not of some of the algorithms that I can see. There's um, they need to be very careful these social because I think they have a huge responsibility. I take my responsibility really seriously, and I don't know whether those media companies really look at the outside world and see what effect the algorithms that those those platforms put out is to is it for positivity on this planet and i have to say no it's there's there's addiction issues within it um that massively need addressing and i think unless they do it will burn out because people will realize the mental health issues that it causes with if the algorithm is incorrect we're sort of going on the back end where july sort of 2022 what would you like to see for the industry in a year's time? Wow. Um, for the UK industry, we, we, we've got some big things coming up. So we've got the gambling review comes out, the white paper from government. Um, I'm s significantly worried uh, about affordability checks in terms of what that will do in terms of the revenue. I think there is a very, very small amount of people that are addicted to generally slots and casino games and some of the bookmaking industry have made sure that we as a sport which is predominantly funded by betting is linked that it's as a whole so oh don't if you're gonna if you're gonna regulate you need to regulate it all rather than regulating the online casino games which are 11 times more addictive than sports betting and that's the speed of loss in terms of you've still got to watch an event before you then go and do it again. Here you're like ding, 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 and, you, and you're losing. That's why it becomes addictive. So that's a huge part. And so I can't predict which way that's going to go. But if it, as the sport moves over to a turnover model, like it is in Australia in terms of how it's uh, funded by bookmakers, if but if that's gonna that will massively affect our turnover and uh, affect the uh, the revenue to the sport, premierization looks like it's about to start forming. Uh, the sport is got a is building a strategy of which today, as we sit here today, that the it's been leaked, stroke launched, that a lot of the participants want a premierization of our sport, which I can get. You know, that's a good thing to sell. How that's funded as long as it doesn't affect the masses there's far more horses rated underneath 75 than there are above 75 um, and they're the ones that produce the levy because that is all on turnover with decent field sizes so it's going to be interesting to see how how that happens but it needs to happen our sport is the same as it was 250 years ago and every other sport has changed in some way shape or form to modernize um, i hope that we'll have launched be it us, be it the sport, a young person's engagement program, stroke club, probably going to be on a virtual uh, basis in terms of chat groups, in terms of behind the scenes gallop tours. We're sat here in Lambourne. It's the most amazing view out here in terms of uh, our gallops. And to get people up close and personal, young people up close and personal, it costs nothing. I've got trainers. I've got race course groups. I've got the gallop companies such as the jockey club turn around and saying, absolutely, Josh, if you want to bring 100 youngsters up, if you want to bring 1,000 youngsters up here, bring them show them, get them into this. So that's the next stage. How do I structure that? And it's not going to be me that's going to structure it. I'm going to, I'm going to go and talk to teenagers because they're the people I want to go and do. The problem we've got is the majority of marketeers in our sport are over 45, predominantly over 50, 
how are they going to know what teenagers want? And the answer is you go and ask them, but we don't. And my plan is that we do go and ask them. Amazing. I find you a really open person, um, someone who's actually genuinely quite excited about the future and excited about what's, what's around the next corner. How open are you and what's the easiest way for anyone that's listening or sort of watching you, what you're doing through different social channels, how easy are you to get in touch with? Very easy. Um, you can go, if you go to racingpathway.com, it depends on what you want to find out about, to be honest with you. Yes, I'm on Twitter and, and Instagram, but equally, um, if you go to racingpathway.com, um, you can subscribe on there and get updates from there. You can get hold of me on there, actually, um, and, and, and go straight through. I get to see everything that comes through on there in terms of inquiries, um, and you can see me regularly on Sky Sports Racing as well. So um, you can. there are various different ways of getting hold of me. And do you welcome a lot of young people coming to ask you questions, bouncing ideas? I love it, because that's the future. And, if, and, 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 there's, and that, there is, people use the word legacy and see it as a bit of a negative. I think if I, if, if I can get, I want to leave this sport better than I, I found it. And I think that was something I learned from reading the book Legacy, which is about, uh, which is written by the, the All Black team. And they, whenever they leave a changing room, the players clean the locker room and leave it as they found it, or if not, cleaner. And it's only the players that do it. And my nervousness was, whenever I do start pushing up daisies and leave this earth, that the sport that I love was not in a position, and it was worse off than when I joined it. And so I felt I had to go and do something. And so rather than have a midlife crisis and buy a Ferrari and have an affair, <laughs> I thought I'd go and uh, try and make our sport more reflective of society to make sure that more people have an opportunity to enjoy what I've done. Josh, I've loved it. I've loved picking your brain. I've loved hearing about what's next and what's coming and what you've achieved so far. And I'm, I'm so glad that you're a part of racing. I'd, I'd be so sad if you're in another sport. I'm so glad you're a part of racing. So thank you so much for your time today. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs>